0: most of our patients with Crohn's disease are still living with symptoms on a day-to-day basis so there's Mm -hmm. a lot we can do with food Laurie and I guess the first clues come from the epidemiology work we know that individuals who eat more fiber eat more plants at baseline we know that children who consume more fruits and vegetables are significantly less likely to develop inflammatory bowel disease particularly Crohn's disease because plants contain fiber and phytonutrients that are microbiome, metabolized into short-chain fatty acids. Uh, fiber helps to maintain the integrity of the gut barrier. Phytonutrients like indoles in our cruciferous veg tamp down the inflammatory response in the gut lining. And we even know that um, soluble plant fibers, like fibers like pectin, that we find in things like broccoli and plantain and bananas, um, help to reduce the invasion of harmful bacteria in individuals with Crohn's disease. Mm. And what does the exact opposite to that? Highly processed foods. So, you know, with things like... On the Healthy Human Revolution podcast, Dr. Lori Marbus interviews nutrition and lifestyle medicine experts and extraordinary guests whose informative and inspiring stories will empower you with the knowledge to transform your life and health.
1: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marbus, and today I'm so honored to welcome Dr. Alan Desmond. How are you, sir?
0: I'm great, Lori. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Should be good.
1: Yes, absolutely, and um, this is exciting because you are in England at the Devon Gut Clinic in the southwest part of England, and so we really want to focus on gut health, but before we go there, I really enjoy you know speaking to um, my colleagues and understanding how did your journey, one to medicine, begin, and how did you find a plant-based diet, because I think that's always intriguing.
0: Oh, great question. Well, I'm Irish, so I grew up in a little town called Blarney, um right down the south of ireland so it's famous for the blarney castle i don't know if you've heard of that we would get a lot of american tourists growing up so as a kid um part of the whole mix of people that i would see was these like busloads of american tourists all the time and that was just part of the the milieu where i grew up you know which was lovely um so i grew up there in ireland and i guess funnily enough um it was something that was kind of always on my mind so uh, to get right back to it, Laurie, I mean, when I was born, I was pretty unwell, I was an unwell neo, neonate. Um, I had a um, acute respiratory distress syndrome. Wow. So I was in an incubator and very critically unwell. Um, so whenever, you know, when you're a kid and you ask your mummy and daddy and you say, hey, tell me about the day I was born, what was it like? I mean, my kids do that now with us, you know, they like hearing about how we went to the hospital and You know, what was on the radio when you were born and all this kind of thing. So when I would ask my parents that question, they would tell me the story about a very sick baby. um, And my dad had been told that I might not survive. And my parents always spoke so highly of the doctors and medical professions, professionals who'd been there for me when I needed it the most. So it was something that was always on my mind growing up and, you know, so yeah, eventually when I got to that age in my teens and I had to choose what I was going to study in university, um, I, I really medicine was my number one choice.
1: That's fantastic. So I guess each of us has some personal story. My sister was very ill when I was little and she was little, she was four, I was 10 and she, uh, ended up having a surgery that just completely changed your life. And I just thought the hospital was the coolest place. (laughs) So it's like, I'm not sure many other children like the smell of a hospital, but I thought it was cool. But yeah, it's
0: awesome. I know. I remember as a kid going to... you know, you would occasionally visit the hospital to visit a relative or something. Mm-hmm. And I do I do have one very vivid memory when I was maybe 10 or 12 going with my dad to visit a relative who was unwell. We got into the lift and there was a completely exhausted young doctor in the lift who looked like he was about to, you know, fall over. Oh, and my, wow. I remember my dad said to him, oh, you look busy. And he turned to my dad and said, there's no let up. And he shook his head and he walked out of the, walked out of the, walked out of the elevator. And, but I remember looking at him like he was Superman, you know, just going, <laughs> wow. And, you know, sadly for me, about 12 years later, I was working at that same hospital. And I was the exhausted hospital <laughs> doctor on hour 30 of a 36-hour shift. But I would always remember that young doctor and yes. think, yep, there's no let up. Certainly it's a long and uh, demanding roads that we both chose, you
1: know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's funny because now my my daughter is, like I'd mentioned earlier, is in medical school. And we started medical school in kindergarten the same day and um, my other two were three and ten, ten months. So wow. I had three little ones and starting medical school, apparently it didn't scare her. So the other two were like, I want no part of it, but the, the, <laughs> Emily's like, I'm on it. I'm like, all right, kid, go for it. But uh, yeah, it's always fun. Well, how did you find a plant-based diet? Because what was, it? was there a book or was there a patient or a personal history?
0: Well, about two or three years out of med school, I was doing my first rotation in gastroenterology which would ultimately become my chosen specialty. And so I was working on a gastroenterology unit as a junior member of the team who was taking care of patients with pretty severe gut health problems, you know, hospitalized patients. And I was really interested in patients with inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, because generally these are young patients, they look outwardly really healthy. It doesn't make sense that they would be in hospital and that they would be so unwell and having so many symptoms and i just uh, helping them to get better really attracted me into medicine or, or excuse me into gastroenterology as a specialty and i remember very early on around the time that i was there we're talking about maybe 2002 2003 we just had these new drugs these biologic drugs like infliximab and adalimumab later were coming on the market and we could administer these medications to these young people who were terribly unwell with inflamed gastrointestinal tracts. And within days, you could visibly see them getting better. And as a young trainee junior member of the gastroenterology team, I was also able to be there when my boss looked inside with the scope and was able to show me in real time the diseased bowel and then later the healthy bowel. So those miracle medications that worked so well in the acute setting really attracted me into um, gastroenterology. But I always remember being on the ward at that time, and there was young, one young man, about 17 years old. He had very bad, well, quite bad Crohn's disease. He was in hospital. He was on day three of powerful steroid injections to dampen down the inflammation. Um, we'd just given him one of these new drugs, these immune mod- suppressing drugs, a biologic drug. And he knew that if things didn't get better, he was going to end up having surgery. But we were able to go into him on the ward round with my boss and say, look, good news. The drugs are working. You're getting better. Um, You're not going to need surgery right now, which is wonderful. Um, And you can start eating more normally now. You know, he was taking like liquidized supplements, etc. And he was there. His mom was at the bedside. And he asked um, us and asked my boss, you know, what should I eat? Is there any foods that I should eat, any foods I shouldn't eat? And his mom looked at us expectantly. Um, and patients know intuitively that food is key here when you've got a gastrointestinal problem. But the answer that he was given at that time, which was in keeping with the thinking at the time, was it didn't matter a calorie is a calorie and what you need now is calories so my boss said it doesn't matter eat what you like you can have junk food as long as you're getting calories and my boss turned to his mom and said mom does he like mcdonalds do you want to bring some mcdonalds in for him and rather than their eyes lighting up they both looked a bit dubious and i felt a bit dubious and for you no know, years as a as a junior trainee i would say the same thing to patients they would ask me that question all the time and As I progressed and I became dedicated to being a gastroenterologist myself, I noticed that every single patient, when you diagnose a gut health problem, be it diverticular disease, precancerous polyps, um, irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, fatty liver disease, or all of these diseases which are so common in high income countries like the US and the UK, they always ask their gastroenterologist the same question. Is there any food I should eat, any food I should avoid? And what they're asking is, are there foods that I can eat or avoid to make myself feel better today, but also to improve my prognosis and to help me to heal and help things to improve? So throughout my career, uh, particularly focused on inflammatory bowel disease initially, I would go to the same mainstream medical journals where we learn about the new medications, the new surgical techniques and the new endoscopic techniques. And I would seek out in those journals, good quality, peer-reviewed papers and discussion uh, papers and guidelines focusing specifically on what makes up a healthy diet. Mm. And when it came to inflammatory bowel disease in particular, it was very evident you know, to me, even several years back that the more whole food, the less processed the diet, the better. Mm-hmm. And the more calories that were coming from healthy plant-based sources of protein, the better. And the logical conclusion, I, I remember I made up this list of kind of harmful foods and helpful foods. Mm-hmm. And in, an, in, you know, in a nutshell, if it excused excuse the terrible pun, it was whole food, plant-based. And the more whole food and the more plant-based, the better. And you can't read all of those papers and studies about mucosal inflammation and the pro-inflammatory effects of animal products and the harmful effects of highly processed foods and food additives. You can't just read those and ignore everything else around them, such as colon cancer risk and obesity risk and type 2 diabetes risk and cardiovascular risk Mm -hmm. and whichever angle you're looking whichever angle you're coming at it from as a doctor the same thing applies right the less processed and the more plant-based your dietary choices the better and as i grew more confident and started making these firm recommendations to my patients at my clinic Um, who may have had things like irritable bowel syndrome or Crohn's disease, etc. I started seeing not only improvements in their gut health, but also the other benefits. So people's HbA1c's getting better, people losing weight without trying, people's inflammatory markers dropping. And just, you know, the benefits of a whole food plant-based diet obviously go way beyond gut health. And the science, my clinical experience, they all matched up. So personally, I've eaten a whole food plant-based diet since about 2016 um, entirely. And it just struck me that I could not ignore all of this evidence. Um, If I was recommending this to my patients, I had to walk the walk. And it wasn't just about walking the walk, it was about making smart choices for me and my family. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that, that's, that's it really. It's almost inevitable. I remember I, I was lucky enough to meet Dr. Kim Williams uh, two years ago, uh, Dr. Kim Williams, the amazing cardiologist, former mm-hmm. president of Merton College of Cardiology, who is famous for having said there's two kinds of cardiologists, uh, vegans and those who haven't read the data. And I was delighted to be able to tell Dr. Williams that there's two kinds of cardiologists too. And I'm, excuse me, two kinds of gastroenterologists too. And I'm really surprised that more of my colleagues don't need a whole food plant-based diet. But I think that's changing. Even amongst um, the colleagues that I work with on a day-to-day basis, I can see them moving towards a more um, and forward eating as well. So it's been really rewarding.
1: That is amazing. Yeah. So Dr. Kim Williams is a good friend of mine. He, uh, we, we, uh, have the journal, the IJDRP it's the international journal of disease and and prevention. Of
0: course, of course, and, Lori, of course.
1: Yeah. yeah. So I'm the assistant managing editor and are the managing editor. And, uh, it's, it was really fun. We launched it uh, in 2017. Um, there was three of us on a conversation on a call. Um, and, uh, they're like, I asked, so the other two I was like, well, have any of us ever started a medical journal? Dr. Williams, we hadn't got, got him on board yet. And uh, they're like, no. I'm like, well, okay. Then. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> it, was, uh, it took us nine months to create and launch. But um, the beautiful thing about it is we don't charge authors for submissions. There's no author fees and there's no fees to read it. So it's not behind a paywall because we really feel the evidence needs to be placed um, in front of the audience that Needs to have access to it, they shouldn't have to pay for it. And you know, in the United States at least, our government dollars are paying for the most of this research. It shouldn't be mm-hmm. behind a paywall. And um, anyway, that's a whole nother topic is. You know, no,
0: stuff. you're right. Um, but, but the journal is such a great endeavor. And, you know, I only got to, I've only met with Kim this one time when he was in London and he yeah. was really kind to sit down with myself and the other members of Plant-Based Health Professionals UK. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Dr. Shreem Kazam, who you've spoken to recently, mm-hmm. um, was the found, founder of that amazing organization. And he was just so generous with his time and what a gentleman. It was just so, so nice to spend time with him.
1: He is probably by far one of you know you you meet people of integrity and he he just walks and oozes it and I just it's a delight to talk to them anytime you can to talk to him so I think that's awesome that you got to meet him so I definitely consider him a mentor for sure um, mm. but yeah it's uh it's it's uh it's an extraordinary thing when someone personally finds a plant based diet but then when you have a physician who finds a plant based diet and shares that knowledge and information with patients I mean what a an incredible thing. I'm a family medicine physician. And so, um, and I started on a plant-based journey by accident about eight, nine, almost nine years ago. And um, wow. it's, uh, you know, moved the family to it. Uh, and you had mentioned you, your family as well, but my kids were 13, 15 and 18 when I moved to Plebisade. my poor husband, God bless him. He's a good man. He went with it and lost like 60 pounds. Um, wow. And yeah, it, it, it's just a fun story, but now, do you mind speaking, does your family follow the same plant-based diet? Or are they open to that?
0: Yeah. So my kids are four and a half, seven and nine. Oh. Nice. Um, so we just, sur- I'm sure like you, Lori, we just surround them with options, you know, yeah. so, and they find what they love. So, I mean, and it's sometimes it's surprising, right? So my nine-year-old loves miso soup. She makes me make her up a bowl of miso, you know, very regularly. I would never have thought that she would have enjoyed miso soup, but I was making it one time and she said, What's that? And she tried it and she loves it. Um my, that's Rebecca, my middle girl Naomi is like the hugest hummus fan you've ever met. <laughs> so, like she'll like devour a hummus sandwich, absolutely yeah, absolutely adores it. And then my my little fella, or our little fella, four and a half, um, is like the biggest porridge fan and the biggest oat milk fan. Oh, my goodness. We buy so much oat milk that it's, it's crazy. But he just loves it. And we tried making our own this one time. But, you know, what, kids, it's all about texture and consistency. So mm-hmm. he wouldn't go for the homemade stuff. But And they, they thrive on it. But, you know, you you can't tell your kids what to do. Um, if anybody out there knows how to make their children eat exactly what you'd rather they would eat then please share the secret because we haven't figured it out but they'll uh, find their own way they'll, they'll find their own way
1: yeah I would say start early as possible so yep. but you Absolutely. know it really is a matter of influence so now the kids are 22 24 and 26 and mm. um, you know we're nine years later they all have chosen to follow a plant-based diet they are Incredible. It, it, Parenting adults has been quite an interesting, it's such an interesting transition. I tend to be a very involved parent. you know. But um, what was interesting in the beginning when we transitioned these teenagers because they obviously had access to time outside of with us and they could make their own choices. But I was like, listen, at home, this is what we're having. And I'm not a short order cook. You'll eat what I have or you'll you'll be hungry and eat later. Um, But what was interesting, over about a course of a year, and you're constantly educating, you're sharing patient stories, you know, you're encouraging to watch documentaries. Um, They stopped, you know, we go out to eat. I said, order what you want, but they stopped ordering the meats in the dairy and they started ordering tofu and stuff. And I'm just like, "Mm hmm.
0: And it's all about, it. it's as they get older too. I mean, so my oldest girl who's nine is like really strict and she will check things and all that, but it's more to do with Greta Thunberg than it is to do with me you yes. know because she's a big fan of greta and she knows that greta eats eats a plant-based diet and for yeah. my younger kids i'm lucky enough to be good friends with stephen and david flynn of the happy pair oh nice. who who are like these irish celebrity plant-based cooks twin brothers
1: yes <laughs> twins
0: yes. Yeah, stephen davers just amazing they're so full of positivity and so we've been over to visit them they've been over to see us in, in, in our little village and um, last year, they were good enough to go and do an event at my daughter's school. Um, so, my, my young kids adore them, and I think their plant based diet's got more to do with Steve and Dave than it does with me. <laughs> but, you know, it's, um, but it's really lovely just to see my kids growing up and thriving in that way. And that is I know amazing. they'll be healthier for it in the long term.
1: Absolutely. So, what did your wife say at the time that you decided to bring home a plant based diet?
0: Oh, she was all up for it. Um, no, no concerns whatsoever. Um, I think Hannah was pretty much pescatarian anyway and had been mm-hmm. for years. So it was pretty easy for her to make the change.
1: Wonderful. And
0: when we made the change as well, we had another, like good friends of ours, another couple called Wade and Leslie. And so we all jumped in together. So, you know, like the support is so important, isn't it? Because we would be like cooking extra meals and drop them up at each other's houses and getting together for plant based lunches and things. So just supporting each other and sharing recipes and techniques and and that really just made it fun um, for us. And since then, of course, our little local plant based community. Has grown a lot. So, tons of our friends now eat a completely plant based diet, even some people that I would never have anticipated. Um, So, it's it's just getting easier and easier, right?
1: Fantastic. Yes, it is getting easier and easier. Um, And, you know, speaking of starting a plant based diet and getting easier and easier, so sometimes you'll have individuals, you'll read stories, you'll see YouTube um, interviews where someone starts a plant-based diet and they don't mm-hmm. do well. And a lot of GI upset issues, they get gas, they get either constipation, diarrhea, um, bloating, and they you know, really struggle and sometimes they fall off and go back to their standard way of eating.
0: Mm-hmm. Can you
1: speak to that a bit as a GI doc, what's going on and how can people start working through those?
0: Yeah, I th- the first thing I would say, Laurie, in the in the vast majority of cases, that isn't what happens. So, oh my in my experience through my clinic and through the various online courses that I've run, I've helped probably thousands of people now to make the transition to a plant-based diet and my experience is that for the vast majority of people that is not how it goes but yes it does for some people and why is that well there's a big difference between the standard western diet and a whole food plant-based diet Mm -hmm. and so one of the key differences is the amount of fiber that one is consuming so if you look at a standard western diet in the US and the UK they're not that dissimilar really we're getting fifty five to sixty percent of our calories from ultra processed junk foods, so highly processed white bread, which is really cake you 've got um, you know jellies and jams are probably the closest thing to a fruit or vegetable that you 've got in there there 's no fiber in that food they 're filled with emulsifiers and flavor enhancers and maltodextrin and carboxymethyl cellulose and all this junk that is just not good for our gut but is very low in fiber. And the average person is not getting anywhere near even the five a day fruits and vegetables, which is a modest target. So in a standard Western diet, you may be consuming 10, 12 or 15 grams of fiber per day, which is far below even the minimum recommended 30 grams a day. Mm you then make the change to the whole food plant-based diet. So you're on a standard Western diet and then you see forks over knives or what the health, or the game changers, you go, okay, I'm all in. You get the forks over knives cookbook and you're straight in there. So now you're having, you know, you're having millet for breakfast. You're having a, the big salad for lunch and you're having tempeh, um, grilled tempeh or something, you know, so now in the, now you're eating 55 to 60 grams of fiber per day, and the, a lot of that fiber is indigestible to humans, you know, it's non-absorbable, indigestible, and we've got to depend on the gut microbes that live in our human gut microbiome to digest it for us. If you've not been feeding your gut microbiome a ton of fiber for 20 or 30 or 40 years, and then you suddenly send it a tremendous amount of fiber, you are going to end up with bloating and abdominal discomfort and urgent needs to visit the bathroom. It doesn't happen to everyone, but it is very common. And there are certain foods that are particularly difficult to digest if you've not been eating a lot of them throughout your lifetime because your gut microbe isn't set up to digest them. When We refer to those as the FODMAP foods. What Mm -hmm. are FODMAPs? Fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. Now, generally, these are short carbohydrates that are found in super healthy foods like avocado and whole grains, and fruit and mango, etc. They are beneficial to the human gut microbiome, but when we consume them, they do ferment and the fermentation process, which is fantastic because it leads to the production of short-chain fatty acids, which have a myriad of health benefits, but that process produces gas and liquid. So suddenly you are filled with gas and liquid. So if you make that transition very quickly you may find that you are struggling with gas and liquid. And if you perceive that that means that your gut health has disimproved, then I could completely see why you would take out a fiber-rich plant-based source of protein, such as chickpeas or tempeh, and put back in a chicken breast, which is completely devoid of fiber, and you would have less bloating. You go, ah, I digest chicken better than I digest chickpeas. Mm -hmm. So I could see why people might come to that conclusion. However, it may be a matter of just making that transition a bit more gradually. So I would often say to people, if you are, if you have seen the Game Changers or What the Health or any of these amazing documentaries or read a book and you are making the change, maybe start with breakfast for a few weeks, make your breakfast plan powered. After another few weeks, move on to lunch, then dinner, then snacks, and just gradually increase that, that fiber content. And it'll just give your gut microbiome and your digestive tract a little bit of time to adjust to your new, healthier approach to eating.
1: That's a fantastic explanation. And how long does that typically take for someone to see resolution completely of symptoms in that type of setting?
0: Absolutely. So your microbiome starts to change within days, which is reassuring. And we know this, we've seen studies, 2014, group of researchers at Harvard University and University of California took volunteers and put them on a completely plant-based diet for the first time. What did we see within days? We saw their gut microbiome adapting an increase in the healthy bacteria that digest fiber and turn into short-chain fatty acids beneficial things happening within days. But typically, I think if someone gives themselves maybe a four to six week lead-in, they should be absolutely fine. And it's an issue that is often mentioned, right, at like plant-based conferences, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and one, another aspect to it, Lloyd, that I would say is as modern humans who spend a lot of time indoors, mm-hmm. we perceive... That maybe getting to the bathroom four or five times a day or fermenting a lot and passing a significant amount of gas as a socially embarrassing and difficult situation. Mm. It may not be a harmful situation. If you look at one of our closest living genetic relatives, so we have um, mountain gorillas in remote Africa, okay, so the Western lowland mountain gorillas. Genetically, they're very similar to humans. They look quite like humans. They eat a completely plant-based diet. They are eating 90 or 100 grams of fiber a day. They eat a huge diversity of plants. We know the studies show that their gut microbiomes are super fermenting gut microbiomes. We know that whereas humans generally fall into one of two different uh, microbiome enterotypes, uh, Prevotella or Bacteroidetes predominant, among these gorillas it's like five different types of um of human microbiome enterotype they're like super diverse in their gut microbiome and that may be an insight into what the primitive human microbiome look like
1: Hmm. interesting
0: do they need to rush to the bathroom nobody knows they don't use the bathroom they're out in the woods (laughs) do they pass a lot of gas well if they do it doesn't matter because nobody notices it's just they're just gorillas in the jungle doing their thing. So uh, some of these issues that we perceive sometimes is very acutely embarrassing. And I see patients at clinic who pass what they perceive as excess gas and they have never spoken to anyone about it. They're embarrassed by it. They can't go out for dinner because of it. And these normal functions of the human digestive tract have become a little bit, a little bit stigmatized or a little bit afraid of them. And we, we, we shouldn't be you know, I often say to people, if you buy a newspaper at the weekend, you get out the Sunday supplement, it's just packed with recipes and restaurant reviews. And now, of course, they've all got these, you know, gladly we're seeing so many more beautiful plant-based recipes in these mainstream Sunday supplements. So everybody loves food. We celebrate with food. We commiserate with food. We have national dishes in different countries, but every, once we've eaten the food, we don't like talking about it. It's like once it's past our lips, it's kind of embarrassing. It's, it's kind of a social faux pas to discuss what happens afterwards. And I wish we could change that. Mm. If it was normal to sit down for Thanksgiving dinner with your extended family and sit down and say, you know, guys, I haven't pooped for like seven days Is that normal? Has anyone, has that ever happened to anybody else? Wouldn't it be so great if that was normal? And then your auntie might say, oh yeah, that happened to me before. And I increased my fiber and I I felt a lot better here. Why don't you have some of the, you know, have more of the chickpea salad that your, your sister made. And wouldn't it be lovely if you could sit down and have that conversation and someone at the table would say, you know, If you see a little blood in your poop, you should get that checked out. That's what the doctor told me. But we don't talk about these things. And I wish we did. I wish we could just fess up that everybody poops, everybody digests, everybody makes digestive gas, everybody ferments. Nobody should be embarrassed to talk about this stuff.
1: Oh my goodness. That's fabulous. You know, it's, it's funny because I talk a lot about poop with my patients, obviously, but I have this one patient and I've, and the mom's already said I could share her story because it's so adorable, but um, they were on a ketogenic diet previously had before I spoke to them. They have a four-year-old and a seven-year-old. The four-year-old was diagnosed with type one diabetes in December, just this last December. So they started seeing me to help them with their diabetes and the seven-year-old and was really struggling with all the fibers so we started talking a lot about poop and you know tummy pain and what we were doing about it and she's doing great now what <laughs> was funny you know I, I talked to mom about the poop chart you know the Bristol's the poop chart the bristol
0: and, stew chart yes yeah. yes i have a mug with that yep
1: i was just about to talk about the mug so the mom bought a chart in the bathroom, because these little ones are going to the, obviously to the bathroom on their own at this point. And she goes, I need you to point to the type of poop that you're having and let me know so I can talk to Dr. Marvis about it. And so mom actually even bought a a mug with the chart on it. And she showed me one night and I was like, I'm going to get one of those mugs. So now I have one of those mugs and my, it's like the mug that we fight over. (laughs) And <laughs> the house is who gets to drink out of the poop bargain?
0: <laughs> so that's the Bristol stool chart, which was yes. designed about 20 years ago, Bristol Univers- or Bristol Royal Infirmary which isn't a million miles from where I work and practice. Oh. Um, and so, the, so it's the chart that goes one through five from, you know, a hard constipated poop all the way up to a runny watery poop and everything in the middle is healthy. So like it's type three is deemed or was deemed by the experts at Bristol Royal Infirmary to be the perfect poop. So that was, a, that was about 20 years ago. What's really interesting is just a couple of years ago, a separate team of researchers um, went about doing a study to, figure out if there was any correlation between the human gut microbiome and the stool type. And actually what they concluded was that the type 3 stool also shows an incredibly favourable um, gut microbial profile, and nice. I just thought that was just so interesting. That you know, twenty years ago, they designed this thing before we n- really knew much at all about the human gut microbiome. And yes. here we are, twenty years later, and it just, yep, you were right, guys. The Bristol Royal Infirmary got it <laughs> right. So yes, I have a mug just like that one.
1: It's <laughs> fabulous. Thank you, Amazon. You can get anything on Amazon. <laughs> but, um, as far, let's if you dive in a little bit to a lot of people, you know, like they just like, I have IBS, you know, like it's some type of another condition, just like hypertension or diabetes. And it's just like, you know, it's what I have. And they don't mm-hmm. think there's actually any way to resolve these types of situations. But maybe you describe what SIBO and IBS, how they interconnect and what patients should be thinking about or speaking to their physicians or what they can do themselves to improve such a thing.
0: Sure. So IBS can be a very frustrating diagnosis for patients. So typically when we talk about IBS or Irritable Bowel Syndrome, from a patient perspective, it means I've got dreadful gut health symptoms every day and my doctor keeps telling me there's nothing wrong with me. And that can become incredibly difficult. Symptoms of IBS like bloating, constipation, indigestion, um, even diarrhea, etc., and distension on top of bloating are incredibly prevalent in countries that have embraced the this, this standard Western diet. Mm. And that doesn't surprise me because the standard Western diet, which is filled with artificially produced foods, which are full of harmful chemicals, which increase your gut permeability and increase chronic inflammation and are devoid of fiber and phytonutrients, As we said earlier make up 55 to 60 percent of the calories consumed they make up 80 percent of the calories consumed for about one in five people so if we're putting this junk into our digestive tract and if we're eating a super low fiber diet our gut our gut is not going to function well of course it's not going to function well we may be well suffering from things like constipation and abdominal distension and diarrhea. And I see patients at my clinic all the time who are profoundly constipated. Mm -hmm. And bearing in mind the food environment that we live in, I usually start with three simple questions. And those three simple questions are, how many pieces of fruit do you eat every day? How many servings of whole grains do you eat every day? And how many servings of vegetables do you eat every day? And that sounds super simple, but in this current food environment that we live in, those three questions can start some really powerful uh, conversations. And sometimes, Laurie, sadly, the answers will go a little bit like, yes, I like fruit. I have an apple every couple of days. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes, I love vegetables. I have a lot of vegetables with my roast dinner on Sundays. Mm. and what's a whole grain, Doc? Do you mean the bagels with the seeds on the top? Mm. And that isn't a, a criticism of the patients or a criticism of the public or anything like that. It's just that's how we are educated nowadays about food. So mm. people don't regard fruits and vegetables and whole grains as essential components of a healthy diet. Mm. And genuinely in my clinic, those conversations identify some real easy wins. So if I have a patient who doesn't consume any whole grains at all, which as you know, is incredibly common, um, whole grains are very often neglected. We start talking about things like oats and brown rice and whole grain pasta and frica and quinoa and find out what they like and bring those in. And if I have a person who doesn't ever eat fruit and vegetables... It can be so basic. Do you like bananas and apples and oranges? Great. Could you eat a banana an apple and an orange every single day for me for the next two weeks? And those simple conversations can really produce pretty profound results. It's not a dramatic change. I'm not dropping the How Not to Die cookbook on the desk and saying, here, do this, because that is going to be completely overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And those simple little changes can be very, very helpful. And I've had numerous patients who I've seen, in, and this happens you know, several times per week, and I will meet patients who have been told that they have profound IBS. They may have severe pain, severe constipation, severe distension. They may have had a colonoscopy and a gastroscopy and a CT scan. I saw one lady last year who'd had a, a diagnostic laparoscopy surgery to look inside her tummy to find out why she was getting so much pain. Nobody had talked to her about the food she was consuming. Oh
1: my goodness.
0: And I get it. These tests are important. And I'm I'm a mainstream gastroenterologist. Yes, I prescribe medications. Yes, I do endoscopies and colonoscopies and MRI scans and all the sensible tests that we need to do to make sure that there isn't a serious underlying condition at play but we also need to talk about food. And just speaking with that young woman, um, she'd been living with obesity for a number of years. She had PCOS, she had type two diabetes, and she'd been, she she understood from what she'd read online or speaking to friends that she shouldn't eat fruit because it would push up her blood sugars, that she shouldn't eat whole grains because carbohydrates would make her fat. So those two things just weren't in her dietary plan. And just by focusing on these pretty simple fiber-focused, plant-based focused changes, she experienced within about four to six weeks, complete resolution of these symptoms that had been landing her in the emergency department.
1: Wow.
0: And you know, so the changes can be pretty dramatic and pretty quick for people. And for patients who have more specific needs, I see a lot of patients at my clinic with things like Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And if you have a condition whereby you've had very profound gut inflammation for many, many years sometimes those changes require specific dietitian support so if you don't have a very severe condition like that i mean you don't need a dietitian to say eat tofu instead of chicken and eat more fruits and vegetables but if you've got a condition whereby your gut is damaged or stenosed or narrowed or if you're post op from a condition then the support of a registered dietitian can be super super helpful and sometimes critical. And I'm very lucky in my practice that I work with a team of really awesome registered dietitians.
1: Wow, that's amazing. So what would, can you describe what SIBO is specifically um, so people can understand, well, maybe I don't have IBS or maybe I have uh, SIBO versus the other?
0: Absolutely. So SIBO gets mentioned a lot. I mean, particularly in the last Six or eight months has become a very popular topic for discussion. I mean, we've known about small intestinal bacterial overgrowth um, for quite some time as gastroenterologists. But the patient who we would typically expect to develop this problem is someone who's had surgery on their bowel, Mm -hmm. who may have sections of their bowel that are blind ending so that they don't go anywhere. Um, or people who've been on long-term medications such as proton pump inhibitors or sometimes patients with type 2 diabetes. But historically, this has been something, Laurie, that we would diagnose in older patients who'd been on a lot of medications or had had a lot of gastrointestinal surgery over the years. So the human gut microbiome resides primarily in the colon, in the large bowel. And its job, among other things, is to ferment plant fiber into beneficial substances such as short-chain fatty acids, which, as mentioned earlier, benefit our health in so many ways. However, the small bowel or the small intestine also contains bacteria, but not nearly so many. And if you get into a situation where you have lots of bacteria growing in your small bowel, then you, we call that small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So those bacteria, which probably should be in your large bowel are now in your small bowel and they're doing what they're supposed to do. They're fermenting and they are breaking down fiber and producing gas and liquid. But if if that's happening in your small bowel, it can be an issue generating abdominal distension and discomfort and we refer to that as small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO. In practice, um, we can diagnose it by doing a procedure called a breath test. Um, But breath tests can be a little bit unreliable, to be quite honest. So a lot of gastroenterologists would advocate, if you strongly suspect the diagnosis, to go ahead and treat it with specific antibiotics and see if the patient improves. But whenever we diagnose it as clinicians, we always do some checks to make sure there isn't an underlying problem, such as celiac disease or Crohn's disease or colitis or something else. We also see a type of bacterial overgrowth in people with chronic slow transit bowels or patients Mm. with chronic constipation. So it's quite common that we would see patients who, earlier on I was discussing how a standard Western diet can result in a very constipated person with slow gastrointestinal tract um, transit and, you know, a big buildup of stool within their large bowel, often that fermentation process can then become amplified. So the person wakes up in the morning and their tummy is nice and flat. And by bedtime, they look like they're nine months pregnant. Hmm. So that is another sort of uh, bacterial overgrowth that we see in patients with chronic slow transit or constipation. So whenever we... Do go through treating people with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth with um, you often with antibiotics. In my practice, that um, intervention not only does it come with some tests to make sure that there isn't a serious underlying gut health issue that provoked the bacterial overgrowth, but it also comes with healthy dietary advice about moving about how we can maybe ensure that this doesn't happen again, and we can move you towards a healthier pattern of eating.
1: Exactly. That's fantastic. So then we have a few more minutes left here. And I know that you really like to speak about the inflammatory bowel diseases, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis. Could you speak to that? What symptoms maybe if someone has, you know, an IBD, what they should do and what and how the diet can help such diseases?
0: Of course, so so if we take inflammatory bowel disease or Crohn's disease specifically, so this is a form of inflammatory bowel disease which causes damaging inflammation Anywhere in your gastrointestinal tract. So individuals who develop this condition can develop sections of their bowel, um, large bowel, small bowel, sometimes even in their mouth or around their bottom or even in their stomach. And rather than being healthy and pink and functional, the lining of those parts of the bowel look red and sore and have ulcers on them. And we can see them when we look inside with our endoscopes. And for patients um, with Crohn's disease, that inflammation can lead to chronic narrowing and stricturing of the bowel. And the inflammation can even extend beyond the bowel into surrounding tissues in their abdomen. So as you can imagine, having this condition has a serious impact on your quality of life because people can develop symptoms like chronic diarrhea and weight loss and abscesses. And it can be very uncomfortable. And those GI symptoms can come to dominate your life pretty quickly. In fact, Mm -hmm. most patients with Crohn's disease would say that they're not in good health, that they have poor health. When I was in med school, We were taught that Crohn's disease and IBD were just genetic conditions, that there was nothing you could do about it. Your your patient had gotten unlucky in the genetic lottery. Their immune system was badly programmed and was attacking their gut, causing damage. We couldn't do anything about that, but of course we could give them medications to dampen down the inflammation. And if that didn't work, we could do surgery to remove the diseased segment of their bowel. And sadly, about uh, you know a significant number of individuals with Crohn's disease will go on to have surgery within 10 years of diagnosis. It's really, really common, more than 20% having segments of their diseased bowel removed. But, you know, a few years ago in the Lancet, we saw this incredible paper by called the IBD Genetics Consortium, and they had looked at 30,000 IBD patients from 16 countries around the world. They'd done a full genetic analysis on them, and they discovered that the genetics do predispose to the condition, but they don't do anything to define the disease, particularly to define the severity of the disease. And what we now know is that if you're going to develop one of these inflammatory bowel diseases, sure, you need some genetic susceptibility, but you also need the right environmental triggers. You need the right microbiome. And in many ways, you need the right food and you need the right abnormal immune response. And whereas we were taught in medical school that these conditions were caused by the immune system attacking the gut, in fact, the target of the immune attack is the gut microbiome and the damage that we see in the gut in individuals with Crohn's disease is a bystander phenomenon. Hmm. And the fact that these conditions aren't predominantly due to genetics explains why they became so prevalent in the late 21st century as we industrialized our lifestyle and our dietary habits, and why even today we still we see these conditions emerging in countries that have newly industrialised their you know their uh, food chain and lifestyles. And when we look under the microscope, we see in patients with Crohn's disease that the protective mucus layer in their gut that keeps the bugs away from the lining of the cells has been degraded. So, the cell, the uh, gut bacterial contents are contacting the lining directly, causing inflammation. Mm. We see that the epithelial barrier has become leaky, so, stuff can get through to come in direct contact with the immune system. And then, our immune system, which lies under the lining of our gut, where it is needed because our gut is such a dynamic environment. Uh, which is constantly exposed to food and microbes and everything else that we put in there and potentially uh, damaging infections, that, those, the immune system is ready to react. So when it's exposed to the gut microbiome, it does what it does best and it mounts an inflammatory immune response to try and get that stuff out of there and that's how we get diseases like Crohn's disease and while we have really good medications to treat Crohn's disease most of our patients with Crohn's disease are still living with symptoms on a day-to-day basis so Mm -hmm. there's a lot we can do with food Laurie and I guess the first clues come from the epidemiology work we know that individuals who eat more fiber eat more plants at baseline we know that children consume more fruits and vegetables are significantly less likely to develop inflammatory bowel disease, particularly Crohn's disease, because plants contain fiber and phytonutrients that are microbiome, metabolizes into short-chain fatty acids. Uh, fiber helps to maintain the integrity of the gut barrier. Phytonutrients like indoles and our cruciferous veg tamp down the inflammatory response in the gut lining. And we even know that um, soluble plant fibers like fibers like pectin that we find in things like broccoli and plantain and bananas um, help to reduce the invasion of harmful bacteria in individuals with Crohn's disease. Mm. And what does the exact opposite to that? Highly processed foods. So, you know, with things like, you know, cookies and chips and cakes that stay Uh, shelf-stable for months on end, Mm -hmm. you know, soft-serve ice cream, even a lot of the vegan junk foods now, right, that are becoming so prevalent, they contain artificial emulsifiers. These are chemicals that make them feel creamy and soft and fresh in our mouth. A few years ago, um, we saw some research at Georgia State University where they have this artificial human gut microbiome simulator And what they were able to do was expose that system to some of the emulsifiers that are commonly used in highly processed foods, uh, chemicals called carboxymethylcellulose and polysorbate 80, which, I mean, these aren't foods, we shouldn't be eating these things. But when they exposed this simulated human gut microbiome to these chemicals, what did they find? Well, they found out that these dietary emulsifiers directly target the human gut microbiome, increasing its ability to penetrate the mucus layer, leading to chronic intestinal inflammation. The wow. same chronic intestinal inflammation that in a susceptible and a genetically susceptible person will lead to inflammatory bowel disease, but also in a non-genetically susceptible individual or in anybody also um, helps to promote metabolic syndrome, uh, weight gain, obesity, and insulin resistance. And in fact, the relationship between junk foods And Crohn's disease is so compelling that a few years ago, some researchers wrote to the Journal of Crohn's and Colitis and said, we've solved it. It's the emulsifiers that are causing Crohn's disease. But of course, it's just one aspect of the standard Western diet. We also know that other additives like maltodextrin, Mm. which is consumed by 98% of people in the United States several times per day. Maltodextrin, an artificial carbohydrate made in a lab has the same negative impact on the lining of the gut promoting inflammation and so-called leaky gut and it's not just about the processed foods and the lack of vegetables it's also about the dependence of the standard western diet on animal fat and animal protein which is pro-inflammatory for so many reasons we know that animal um, meat is a great source of heme iron which is pro-oxidative and pro-inflammatory and Increases our risk of developing bowel cancer. We know that if you take a piece of meat and cook it, it's like a chemistry experiment, and you're turning all these organic chemicals into new reactive organic chemicals, like polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and advanced glycation end products. And these these interact with our cells, and they're pro-inflammatory and even carcinogenic. And we know that, you know, our processed meats contain things like sodium nitrites and sodium nitrates, which our body turns into n nitroso compounds, which are carcinogenic. And we know that when we eat meat and eggs, we're feeding our gut microbiome with carnitine and choline, which our microbiome turns into trimethylamine. And the Mm. more of it we eat, the better our gut microbiome gets at making trimethylamine. And that's absorbed by our intestine, transported to the liver, and turned into TMAO, trimethylamine oxide, which we know increases inflammation throughout our body, not only increasing our risk of atherosclerosis, but also heart disease and stroke. So I mentioned earlier how in countries that more recently... Westernized their dietary patterns. We see an emergence of inflammatory bowel diseases right alongside heart disease and obesity and type 2 diabetes and fatty liver disease. A few years ago in Japan, they looked at this exact thing because they had Westernized their dietary pattern and they were seeing Crohn's disease. So they looked... At dietary patterns across Japan for a 30 year period and just correlated it with the, risk, the rates of Crohn's disease. They saw that the mm-hmm. rates of Crohn's disease correlated really strongly with increasing consumption of animal protein, animal fat and milk protein. Mm. Whereas plant protein seemed to be protective. And we see, we've seen the, same, the exact same data coming out of France a few years ago. And you put all that together I mentioned earlier a study that was done, um, published in Nature about six years ago now. Researchers at the University of California and Harvard took a group of volunteers. I mentioned earlier that they put them on a whole food plant-based diet for just four days and saw extremely beneficial changes in their human microbiome, the same group of people and put them on like the carnivore diet, like a meat diet, meat all day, um, a very low, uh, I think it was close to zero grams of fiber per day. So this was the carnivore diet before it was invented. And they mm-hmm. saw dramatic negative changes in their gut microbiome, seeing an almost instant increase in prevalence of bacteria that are known to trigger inflammation of in the gastrointestinal tract, tracked, and have been linked to causing inflammatory bowel disease. Wow. And without going for another half hour, because you know I I could.
1: Which would be great. the
0: the, The evidence showing that we can help our patients with inflammatory bowel disease by helping them to make healthy changes to their diet and to move away from processed foods and to move towards more healthy sources of protein and i mean plant-based sources of protein the evidence showing that that is a beneficial thing to do is really entering the mainstream in gastroenterology right now Mm -hmm. i realize that not all gastroenterologists have read these papers but they are there and they're in our mainstream journals like gut and clinical gastroenterology and hepatology Mm
1: -hmm.
0: so the evidence is there and what I can do, if you wish, with your podcast when you put it up, um, I'll give you a list of some key papers that you could put in the show notes. Yes. And then patients could share those with their gastroenterologists.
1: That would and be amazing. In my,
0: it, in my practice, we use evidence-based dietary advice as well as the best available medications. And we know that these are equally helpful tools, equally powerful tools. And when our patients are really sick, we've got to use every tool in the box. So Mm -hmm. if I see someone who's really unwell with Crohn's disease and we're using the best medications available, we need to give them the best evidence-based dietary advice available too. So we've got to empower them to to be part of the solution. And Mm -hmm. it's become just such a rewarding part of my practice as a gastroenterologist. Excellent.
1: And would you say what percentage of your Crohn's patients actually improve with the whole food plant-based diet, of course, with your traditional means of treating them as well?
0: Absolutely. Well, you know, anecdotally, I can tell you, yes, I've seen some incredibly successful cases. Um, mm. But beyond the, I mean, I've, I've um, several patients who were deemed to have very severe disease, who now have very mild disease or no detectable disease, um, which is wonderful. Some of them are on no medications, but I'm keeping them under very close surveillance because if they need medications, we will start them. And I don't want to leave their inflammation going unchecked. But I think more than my own personal experience, it's much more useful to look at the published evidence on this. And we have seen papers published showing that, for example, with Crohn's disease, It's difficult to get people into complete remission, even using the best medications we have. We would get maybe 30 or 40% of people into complete remission. We have seen in the literature case series published where combining the best available medication with a plant-based dietary intervention education, we can get 90 or 95% of people into remission. So it definitely makes a difference.
1: That's incredible. I mean, this just speaks volumes right there. So, Dr. Desmond, when you, um, I know we're top of the hour, and is there any last advice you would give someone who is maybe considering, you know, starting this journey uh, of a whole diet? site? What, What piece of advice have you found your patients to be the most beneficial in getting started on their journey?
0: Well, just in general terms for anybody, okay, so, you know, moving away from, you know, Crohn's disease or colitis, et cetera, just generally, um, I would say, find your own way. Find some awesome plant-based cookbooks or go online on YouTube and search healthy plant-based recipe. And just find food that looks familiar to you, things that remind you of the foods that you enjoy eating on a daily basis. The change doesn't have to be dramatic. So find your own way. You don't need to eat like your favorite YouTuber or your favorite Instagrammer. You don't even have to eat exactly like the amazing athletes on the Game Changers eat. So find your own way, experiment, maybe just change your recipes if you like cottage pie made with lamb. Why make cottage pie with lentils? And just just play around with it. So find find your own way would be my number one tip. My second tip would be just find support, pull in some support. Um, If you can make the change with a friend or a family member, it's invaluable. Um, Mm -hmm. If you don't have a friend or family member to support you, there may be people in your community who would be interested in getting together and maybe visiting plant-based restaurants together. In this COVID world, in this lockdown world, there are so many amazing communities online that can support you. And my third and final tip, Laurie, is resist the vegan junk food. (laughs) When you're initially making the transition, I can see why that's going to be helpful. It may even be helpful while you're in those first few weeks and you don't want to ramp up the fiber too dramatically. Mm. So plant-based meat substitutes and plant-based ice cream and plant-based pizza and plant-based cookies. Okay. They're awesome. They're amazing. They will help you to make the journey. But these things should be a treat, not a mainstay of your diet. So vegan junk food is still junk food. It's still got the word junk in it. And it has no business in your gastrointestinal tract. <laughs>
1: That's exactly right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And we just so appreciate you sharing your wisdom and knowledge with us.
0: It's been a pleasure, Laurie, anytime. I really enjoyed the conversation.
1: Excellent. Thank you.